The rest of us are going to be in John chapter 6, looking today at verses 25 through 40 in John chapter 6. Ken Mansfield was the U.S. manager of Apple Records for the Beatles. Maybe you've heard of them, a little group that came from England back in the day before a lot of you were born. Uh, Mansfield enjoyed very much working with the Beatles until they broke up. And he wrote his experiences with the Beatles in uh, a book that he wrote in 2000. And, and the book is entitled uh, The Beatles, The Bible, and Bodega Bay. I don't know how that fits. I haven't read the book. After the Beatles, uh, Manfeld went on to work with many big-name uh, recording artists of the 1970s and, and 80s. But by the mid-80s, he was totally broke and down on his luck. And yet God had a different plan for his life. You see, he fell in love with a, with a woman that actually loved Jesus more than uh, she loved him. And after a time, the woman decided to break up with him because he was not a follower of Christ. And uh, that heartbreak deeply moved him, and it propelled um, a desire in him to meet the Jesus that the woman he loved um, cared more for him, for Jesus. And so, in fact, he did meet Jesus in about 1989, and um, in fact, as he began to follow Jesus, he fell in love with Jesus like his girlfriend had done. And in his book, uh, The Beatles, The Bible, and Bodega Bay, he describes how great it was to know the Beatles personally. But he also makes it very clear that that didn't even come close to knowing Jesus personally and learning to follow him question for you. What about you? What is Jesus to you? You know, for some people, Jesus is just, you know, an interesting figure in history. A lot of uh, interesting things about this person. Um, was Jesus just a good moral teacher? Was he just a great teacher? Um, was he the savior of the world? Is he your savior? Um, is Jesus the Lord? Is he, is he your Lord? What do you think about Jesus? Today our passage deals with three questions for Jesus, and his, answer, he, his answers are about his mission and his purpose and I'm just going to start that uh, passage by reading to you uh, the first part of that passage. In John chapter 6, verse, beginning at verse 25, John chapter 6, um, and we begin. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask him, what must we do to do the work, works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. We're going to look at the first question, and the first question is, it's a travel question in verses 25 through 27, and we'll start with that question, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, which would be the Sea of Galilee, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? What a great question. Um, when did you get here? They're face to face with Jesus, and that's what they want to know. Jesus, when did you get here? Uh, you know, maybe not a really profound question. What would you do if you had the opportunity to meet Jesus face to face and ask him a question? What would you ask? What would you want to know? When did you get here? So um, this, this question uh, comes with uh, a little bit of a background to this, and we see this backdrop, the context in verses uh, 22 through uh, 24. So uh, we have verse 20. Can we do uh, 22? Uh, we, you don't have that, do you? Okay, thank you. I got it. And uh, just think about, okay, this is the passage that proceeds, it leads right up to where we are in verse 25. And so, you know, if you have your Bible open or if you have uh, your smartphone open, you can just look at this really easy. Otherwise, you're just lost, aren't you? Okay, verse 22. Um, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boy had been there. So here's what's happened. In John chapter 6, Jesus was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Tiberias, and he crossed the lake with his disciples and went to the east side of the sea, and there he met a group of people. And uh, at the end of the day... We, the, they were very hungry, and so he asked his disciples, what, what are you going to feed them? And, and then, then that led to having them sit, all the people sit on the grass, and they put them in order, and Jesus fed uh, the fish and the loaves of this small boy to over 5,000 men and their families. Great miracle. And then later in the day, um, Jesus tells his disciples to go on ahead and and they're to go to Capernaum, and so um, disciples head out on the boat, but they encounter a great storm on the sea, and they fear for their lives, and then Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Surprise. And all of a sudden, they are in Capernaum. They're there. That was another miracle that only really the disciples witnessed. They didn't know what to think about it, but they were there. And so uh, that brings us to this uh, verse, uh, verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite 
shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, very astute people. And, um, but they had gone uh, away alone, the disciples, and some boats from Tiberias, now that the story has gotten back to Tiberias, there's been a miracle on the other side of the lake, and so a group of people are going to head over where the miracle had been. Then the boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Isn't this exciting? It is. Because there's, there's a context here and a map as well. So um, there you go. So they had been in Tiberias on the west side, and they crossed over. We don't know exactly where they crossed over to, where Jesus on the, on the right side of the Sea of Galilee fed the 5,000 men with their families. And then uh, the disciples headed out into the middle of the lake because they were going to cross. And um, then they encountered a storm, and they went straight north, and they arrived where Jesus wanted them to be in Capernaum. So that's what's happened. Now the, the, uh, the crowd in search of Jesus end up going to Capernaum because that, you know, we don't know why they went, but Jesus was often in Capernaum and Jesus had done a lot of miracles in Capernaum. And not only that, uh, James and John and Andrew and Peter were from Capernaum. It's one of the reasons they hung out there a lot. And so the crowd goes there. And, um, and so they, they asked this great question, when did you get here? Jesus answered, and um, he quickly identifies that they don't really have a sincere motive. As, why would they ask that question? When did you get here? Uh, he answered, verse 26, truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs. You remember that signs or miracles had a purpose, that God had a purpose for them. And the purpose was these miracles were to authenticate the message and the messenger. It's all through the Bible. When God does miraculous things like that, he's saying, wake up, people, pay attention. I'm doing something. Pay attention. And he wanted his people to listen to the messenger, whether it was a prophet whether it was one of the apostles or whether it was Jesus, he was saying, pay attention. And so they should be listening to what Jesus said. He says, you've been looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and your fill. It was because of your stomachs. That's why you came. You want the same thing I gave those people, bread. He gives them this instruction in verse 27, he says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. You're not supposed to work and provide for your family so that they can have food to eat? Food does spoil, doesn't it? It can rot, it can smell, it can decay. Jesus is saying, Don't make that your priority. Don't make the stuff here and now, your highest priority. He's saying there is a higher priority than the here and the now. 
Yes, you need food. It's not the most important thing. There is something more important. Food that endures to eternal life. And then he says, which the Son of Man will give you. That's a term that Jesus often, most often in the New Testament used for himself, Son of Man. And he's saying, I'm the one that's going to give it to you. Are you listening? I'm the one. Um, so what is this food that endures to eternal life? What food will the Son of Man give? This food better be really good. And uh, Jesus goes on to say, For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. God has marked Jesus' life with his seal of approval. In fact, at Jesus' baptism, a voice came from heaven. If you'd have been there, if we'd have been there, I think we'd have just melted to the ground. God the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That would be like a seal of approval, wouldn't it? It was at that time that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus publicly. Not that Jesus didn't have the presence of the Holy Spirit, but it was a sign to God's people that he was being marked by God and he was really being anointed as Messiah for Israel publicly. He was always the Messiah, but now it's a public event. And this is my beloved son. But that's not all that God did for approval. Um, God made promises and prophesied through the prophets for hundreds of years earlier that this, his son was coming. And God's people needed to be ready. Uh, God planned for Jesus' entry into the world. Um, pretty unusual way. He, he, he came by virgin birth. I didn't, wow. But that's a miracle from God. And um, that's how the sinless Son of God entered the world without sin. A miraculous conception. And God empowered Jesus to perform miracles as signs uh, to point the way. But the crowd is not interested in Jesus who stands right before them. They want food. They want something for their tummy. And so we go on in verses 28 and 29, and we have the good works question. Verse 28, they ask him, what must we do to do the works of God to do the works God requires. They're saying, what must we do to be accepted by God? What must we do to be approved by God? What must we do to be saved? And so uh, they just have this mindset that there must be things to do because that's been their life. Um, this is the nature of first century Judaism. You know, there were 613 commands in the Old Testament, Six, 613 things for their to-do list. Now, just to make it a little more complicated, the rabbis of the day and, and years earlier had compiled uh, a couple of books to help them make sure that they didn't break any laws. And they actually added thousands of extra commands to the 613 laws. It's sort of like 
We want to put a hedge around God's word so you don't mess up. Things like don't spit on the grass on the Sabbath because you may water the grass. It's true. It's written. And then Jesus goes on, you know, doing, doing good things, doing good works is just man's natural uh, approach to religion. You know, I got I to gotta do things to, get, to be good enough for God. You know what? That's been man's approach to all religions, to do things, to have a to-do list. But Jesus gives a different answer in verse 29. He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You see, Jesus doesn't give them more rules to add to their list. He gives them one thing to do. The work of God is to believe. That's the starting point. That's where it begins. That's how you have a relationship with God. In fact, it's impossible to have a relationship with God if you don't start there. To believe what God has said about his son, who he is and what he's done. That's how you begin. That's what Jesus is talking about. The one thing, the work of God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son and God wants people to believe what he said about his son. He doesn't care what you believe about John the Baptist. He doesn't care what you believe about Moses. He doesn't care what you believe about the Apostle John. He cares about what you think about his son. I could go through a whole list of religious people of all kinds of religions, and God only cares about what you think about Jesus. The work of God is to believe in the one that he, God, has sent. Um, this, uh, to believe requires faith. It's about trust, to, to, to rely upon. Um, when I grew up, by the way, I did grow up. It's a long time ago. But I attended a church in my early years, like many of you, and some of you had good church experiences. Mine kind of got me off the course um, because I was taught to believe in Jesus and to do good, to be good. Believe in Jesus, be good. The best thing is you maybe hope that you would be able to be accepted by God, that you might go to heaven uh, if you believed and are good. If you, Because believing just isn't enough. You've got to believe and be good. And, and together, you might be accepted by God. Now, that's really dangerous. I've met a lot of people along the way who've come up with that perspective. Um, but that's not it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, uh, Jesus, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul writes these words. Now, he's writing to a group of people who are already believers. And he's just reminding them. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 8, for it is by grace you've been saved, saved from the penalty of your sin through faith. It's not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is by grace. 
God's undeserved favor. It's, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I'll never deserve it. That's grace. It's by grace. And it's through faith. Faith in what God has said about his son. It's not, it's not me. It's not my performance. It's not how cool I am or how great I am. It's a gift of God. It was given to me for God so loved the world that he gave and he gave his son and he gives the gift of eternal salvation the way we begin a relationship with God. Let me just summarize it real, real quickly. Here's what the Bible teaches overall. First of all, all humans fall short of God's standards. All humans fail God's moral code. In other words, all humans are sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us, whether we're infants or really old like me. So, all are sinners. There are consequences to sin, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Consequences facing not physical death, but eternal death, an eternal spiritual death, uh, eternal separation from God, a place that Jesus said is a place of eternal punishment, and Jesus called it hell. A lot of people don't believe in hell today. That doesn't change reality or truth. The wages of sin is death. The good news is, Romans 5, 8, the Apostle Paul says, he says, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was because of God's love. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God demonstrated his love for us. Christ died for our sins. He took our place. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. All of it. And how can that be? It's because of who he is. Jesus Christ is God. And his life is infinitely valuable. And it's way bigger than any sin penalty of billions of people. This is good news. He took our place. I deserve the death. You deserve death. And he paid our sin penalty. But there's one requirement, and it goes back to what Jesus just said a while ago. Acts 16, 31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Those are words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe what God has said about his son and what he has done. He died for you and for me. And that's just it. Requirement to begin a relationship with God by believing. Um, so some amazing things happen, by the way, when a person believes. They're given eternal life. When I placed my faith in Christ, that didn't seem like a big deal. I wasn't planning on living forever. I, was, I didn't even think about living forever. But eternal life is not just a, a life insurance policy at the end of life. Eternal life is a quality of life, a spiritual life that begins the very instant that you put your faith in Christ. And God gives us then 
uh, his spirit to live in us and resources to live each day to follow Jesus, to, to be able to overcome temptation to sin. A lot of the things that really mess us up, and no matter how uh, smart we are, we need resources to help us manage our lives, to have discipline in our lives for the important things. And God gives us the resources. He gives us his word. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He, he enables us to connect with him through prayer. We have this new spiritual dimension when we, when we place our faith in Christ. So that brings me now to verse 10. Do we still have that up there? Yeah, let's go to so verse, yeah, not by works so no one can boast, but here we come to verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. After we've placed our faith in Christ, not before, after we've placed our faith in Christ, after our sins are forgiven, after we become a child of God, after we're given the gift of eternal life, after we're given the gift of eternal salvation, that's where the good works come in. Think about this. So I came to faith on September 29, 1974, and if you'd have known me before, you wouldn't have been impressed. You would have thought, this, how, this guy would never become a Christ follower. But when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, God began to show me one day at a time things that he wanted me to do to honor him. They were prepared in advance. They were prepared long before I was born. God knew that back then I would be standing here and you'd be sitting there. God prepared things in advance for us to do. If I walk with Jesus, I can walk right into them. If I don't walk with Jesus, I miss them. I, I don't want to go through life missing Jesus months at a time as to what he wants me to do. I want to be in tune every day to be able to follow. We come to the third question, the performance question in verses uh, 30 through 40. Now, it's not, uh, it's not about their performance. It's not about their good works, the people, the crowd. It's about Jesus' performance. That's what they're concerned about, the performance question. Verse 30, so they ask him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? What are you going to do, Jesus? For us, uh, show us, Jesus, we would we'd like to be entertained a little bit. Now, they wouldn't say that. We like to be wowed. That's what miracles do. Yet, they have not been listening to what Jesus has been saying. The, the miracles show that the messenger is from God and they should pay attention. They are not motivated to reflect by seeing miracles. They are not motivated to search the scriptures by the miracles Jesus is doing. They have something else in mind entirely for Jesus, something that would benefit them, something that would be really good for them, something if they could just persuade Jesus. And their reasoning, reasoning is in verse 31, and here it goes. Verse 31, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So 
the audience has some background to the Old Testament. They know a lot about Moses. He's the key figure of the Old Testament. They know about the manna from heaven. And they also have some illusions that Messiah may give manna from heaven. Um, and, you know, it's true. God, um, God's people receive manna from heaven in Exodus chapter 16. You probably know the story. Many of you do. God led his people out of Egypt 1,500 years earlier. And when he did, you know, he could have taken them to the promised land in just a few weeks. But he had a different thing in mind. He took them through the desert, the wilderness. And he took them on a 40-year journey. And the whole purpose was to test them. And the whole purpose was to teach them to depend on him. They needed him. He was their God, and they were his people, and they needed him. They weren't always sure that they did, but that's what God did. He did that to teach them. And so um, he let them be hungry. He allowed them to be hungry. That, that, he made them feel. He allowed them to feel uncomfortable. But then he provided supernaturally quail and manna from heaven. And he did it for 40 years. That's a pretty big deal. Now, the crowd now in front of Jesus want him to, to prove himself. Um, now, Moses, he let out a big group. There could have been up to two and a half million people. Some scholars think there were more. 600,000 males over the age of 12 with families. And they tend to have some large families. You do the math, 600,000 males over 20, not including, not including kids, and so not including women, sorry. I'll ask that when I get to heaven. So this is a large group. God provided manna for 40 years for this really large group. They didn't have to work for their food. other than They had to gather it and they had to cook. But God supplied. But Jesus, he only fed 5,000 and their families. And Jesus only fed them once. That's not a very big deal. So show us something better, Jesus. That's what they're looking for. But Jesus corrects them in verse 32. He says, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father. And notice what he says next. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. He's skipping right over that. It was God who fed them in the Old Testament. God gave them the manna, not Moses. Moses was just the, he was the servant. He was the messenger. God provided the manna. But Jesus is saying something more here is my Father who gives, present tense, gives you the true bread from heaven. True bread. Mo Moses wasn't the one who fed the ancestors for 40 years. God did. Now the true bread. Manna was from heaven in the Old Testament, but it was food that perishes. It actually would perish in 24 hours. Jesus is talking about something better, something, the true bread, and it's from heaven. 
It's the real thing. Moses reminds God's people. Stay with me now because this is going to be important. Moses reminds God's people about um, manna, the manna story. And, and it's like he's reflecting here. And we go to Deuteronomy 8.3. Here's what Moses says. This is like 1,500 years earlier. And, and Moses says to his own people who went through the wilderness for 40 years and ate the bread. And he says, he humbled you. God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which is neither you nor your ancestors had known. The manna was to humble them, to test them. And God allowed them to experience this so that they would depend on him, trust him. Why? To teach them that man does not live on bread alone. Jesus quoted that, didn't he? Matthew 4. To teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Humans can't live by bread alone. Humans are to get life and sustenance beyond bread from the earth. They are to get life and sustenance from bread that comes from heaven. And here he's talking about the Word of God, or for us it's a Bible. And I love last week that Pastor Ken uh, just really encouraged us to keep staying in the Scriptures and to walk with Jesus and to be connected with His Word and uh, to be nourished and built up and uh, tuned in with, with what God wants to do at the bridge and, and for us as, as a church to stay in, in the scriptures. Now comes the explanation of true bread, verse 33. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is the true bread. Comes down from God. The bread of life is actually a person. He comes from heaven, and he gives life to the world. So the crowd continues to think about their stomachs instead of the one who stands before them right now. Verse 34, the request. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. You know, if this bread leads to life, give it to us. That's what we want. Um, give us this bread. Moses' manna lasted 40 years. What they're hoping for is Jesus will give them a lifetime supply of bread. That'd really be cool, wouldn't it? They're still thinking about food that you put in your belly. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Verses 35 and through 40, we, we come to the end of this passage with clarification from Jesus. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. The bread is a person. Jesus is the bread of life. This is the first I am statement in the Gospel of John. There are seven I am statements. Now, this is really significant because the Greek word for I am parallels the Hebrew concept in Exodus 3 for I am who I am when God revealed his name to Moses. That was his name. I am who I am. As soon as Jesus makes these I am statements, his audience, at least the religious leaders, perk up because they know he, what he's saying. 
He's making a claim to be God. Now, the audience isn't that tuned in. He says, I am the bread of life. He will say that three times in John chapter 6. In John 8 and 9, he said, I am the light of the world. In John 10, twice he says, I am the door. In, in John 10, he also says, I am the good shepherd. In John eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. In John 15, 1, he says, I am the vine. This is the first one. I am the bread of life. He says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Does that ring a bell, never be thirsty? Yes or no? John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus asked for a drink of water. He was engaging her in a conversation. And uh, he goes on to tell her that he has water that leads to eternal life, that springs up to eternal life. And she says, give me this water. I want the same thing. You know, and I won't have to come back to this well if you give me this water. She's on the same page right now. But she will trust him to be her Messiah. Jesus, in verse 36, says, But I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. Jesus stands before them. He's communicated with them. He's revealed himself to them, and they still do not believe. They are focused on their tummies. Verse 37, All the oaths the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, will, I will never drive away. And when he talks about those who come to him, he's talking about those who trust Jesus, who begin a relationship with God through Christ by placing their faith in him. And he's talking about the benefit of, of coming to Jesus for those who are spiritually hungry and thirsty, those who believe in him. The Father gives them to the Son, and they are secure with the Son. What's he saying? Jesus is saying, Jesus is teaching us about eternal security. That a person's life does not depend on their performance. Their life depends on what God has done already. For it is by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. When you think about it, I didn't deserve salvation. If you know me, you'd have said, absolutely not. So what day did I deserve salvation? I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough to be saved. Never. You'll never be good enough. Never. It's by grace, through faith. And Jesus has made this promise, this let me just remind you of John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus said this, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense, right now, not later, and will not be judged. A promise from Jesus that if you have believed, you will not be judged. That's a promise. It's not, you will be judged if, you will not be judged, condemned but has crossed over from death to life. That's the sphere of eternal life, not the sphere of eternal death. Crossed over, already happened, past tense. 
That's a promise. Jesus doesn't change his mind. The really powerful uh, statements about eternal security. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, the incarnation of Christ, being born through a virgin birth. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the Father's will. This is how God does it. The Father draws people to the Son. In my story, I had really a hard heart. I was an atheist, and God slowly, year after year, began to draw me. I was a slow learner. But more and more, he created a desire for me to know more than what I knew. Part of that was a search through philosophy of trying to figure out the world and how smart people are and the answers to life. And that was an interesting search. Glad I did it, but it, there's not much there. God was creating that in me. I searched for a lot of things. I searched for happiness through love. I searched for happiness through accumulating more and more stuff. I was pretty proud at how many things I could buy new when I was 18 or 19 and making more money than my dad or my father-in-law. I was pretty proud. I was just trying to fill the hole in my heart. Pascal says, uh, inside the, every person is a God-shaped vacuum that only he can fill. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those who has given me, but to raise them up on the last day. This is Jesus' guarantee that the believer will be secure forever. It's God's will that Jesus lose none that God has given. Um, verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. That's God's will and I will raise them up the last day. There's going to be a complete follow-through from the day they believe until the day they're raised up for the eternal kingdom with a new body, the resurrection. There's going to be complete follow-through by God. That's God's will. Security of the believer. A lot of people struggle with that. A lot of people disagree with me, and it's okay if you disagree with me, but I hope you have biblical reasons for it because I think what... The Bible teaches about eternal security way outweighs doubts. Um, this is a very strong affirmation. Now, Jesus is going to come back with it uh, in John chapter 10, and it's stated in another way. Lastly, I want to talk about the offer of God. This will remind us about the offer that Jesus makes here today. It's still good today. Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever believes in him has life. Um, forgiveness for your failures, for forgiveness for your sins. And I'll tell you what, that makes a huge difference to have that load off your plate. When I placed my faith in Christ, I didn't realize how heavy the load was of my sin. When I experienced forgiveness, it was like, whoa, I didn't even realize that. I feel so much different. And it was the beginning of something new to have a weight that I'd been carrying and not realizing how much was there. Whoever believes in him will live forever. 
forgiveness, getting a fresh start, a clean slate. It means you have a new spiritual connection. There is no connection with God until you place your faith in Christ. That's where, that's where it begins. That's when we are born again spiritually and have this new relationship and connection. We now have the presence of the Holy Spirit when we place our faith in Christ. And God enables us to overcome temptation to sin. He enables us to love and serve others. And I'll tell you what, this is really important in family. If we can just keep growing in our love for each other, growing in our love for our, for our spouses and for our kids or for our parents. So to summarize again, to begin a relationship with God, very simply, is to acknowledge that I've sinned. I'm a sinner. It's to understand the eternal consequences of sin. That's often overlooked. There are eternal consequences, according to Jesus, according to the Bible. And then to know that Jesus died for you. He took your place. He paid for your sin penalty. But it doesn't benefit you if you don't trust him. Uh, to accept God's mes message by faith. To receive by faith what Jesus has done for you. To trust him. And I want to close our time this morning just by um, giving uh, anyone here the opportunity, if they've never placed their faith in Christ before, I just want to give, give you an opportunity today. And uh, I, I want to say a prayer. And prayer is not magical, but it, 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 can, it can express our heart if that's what we, what we think. And so I'd like us all just to uh, bow our heads and bow our hearts before God this morning. And, you know, I started by asking you, uh, who is Jesus to you? What do you think about Jesus? And if he's already your Lord, you already know him. May you just acknowledge that and submit before him and yield your life to him right now. But this, if this is something that... Uh, You've never done before. You've never dealt with this issue in a final way. I, I just want to encourage you to consider praying this prayer with me. Just to summarize what I've mentioned. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Can you make that personal? Just privately and silently. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for me. I trust him right now. I, I do believe. And God, I know I need you. I need your help. I need to depend on you. Help me to be the person you want me to be. Help me to know of your presence. Help me to understand forgiveness. It starts with believing in Jesus. And God, I pray for all of us, and I thank you for the day of worship, and I thank you for each of the kids that was dedicated. I thank you for all the people who have come. May we continue to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. May we continue to grow in our love for him if we are Christ followers. May we yield to his leadership. 
May we be ready for the things that he has prepared for us in advance. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.